Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andy. I'm the missions pastor here at Wildwood Church. And Pastor Andrew kicked us off just a moment ago by saying that this Advent season, that the pastors were uh, taking the opportunity to share some of their favorite Christmas passages. And I have to be totally honest with you. Uh, we, we've been talking about this since about September and I had a passage in mind that I knew that I was going to preach, uh, you know, when my turn came. And uh, that's not what I'm preaching today. <laughs> uh, you know, as a pastor, you know, there, there, there are times where the Lord just takes you in a different direction. And last Sunday, as we were worshiping together and Pastor Brian was preaching, uh, I just really felt like the Lord was saying, this is the direction that I want, that I want you to go in the topic that I, uh, that I want my church to hear today. And that makes me nervous. That made me nervous. Um, but I want to I tell you that this week, as I've had the opportunity to dig into God's word and the particular passage that we're going to look at today, it, it is an honor and it is a joy for me to share this with you. But I'm excited to share this with you in the way that, that the Lord has just, just illuminated his word for me this week. And so I'm very, very excited to share that with you this week. So what I'd like for you to do is open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And if you don't have your Bible, we have one right there in the seat back pocket in front of you. And as you're turning to Matthew 2, just real quick to recap the last three weeks of our Advent season together. Um, In week number one, Pastor Brian took us to John chapter 1, where the focus was this baby created the world. This baby, he was the word. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. So he, the word that is Jesus, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in week number two, Josh Pugsley took us to Luke chapter two, where the focus was on the the humility of Christ, the humility of Christ on display, that there was nothing regal about the birth of this king, but actually quite the opposite. It was the humblest of circumstances into which Jesus was born. Circumstances which, let's be honest, none of us would ever choose to bring our children into the world. And then last week, week number three, Pastor Brian focused in on Zechariah, on Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter one, verses 68 through 79. The promise of the Lord has now been fulfilled. This promise, which was spoken through the prophets long ago, is now fulfilled in Jesus's imminent birth. And John, Zechariah's son, is going to be the prophet that goes before the people to announce salvation. So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, even all the way back from Genesis chapter three, verse 14, which is called the Proto-Evangelium or the first promise of a coming Messiah. Now, up to this point, what's undeniable is that there is clearly something special about this baby born in a manger. Would you agree? Would you agree? I would think so. Think about it. Born in a feeding trough for animals. Think about the circumstances that are surrounding his birth. Think about the number of prophecies that, this, that, that Jesus' birth alone satisfies. You have the revelation uh, from the angel to Mary of Jesus' birth and then to Joseph. You have Zechariah's speech in Luke chapter 1. You have the angel's revelation uh, to the shepherds out in the field in Luke chapter 2. So there's so many incredible things that are happening that are centered around this infant child. If that's not enough to tell you that there's something special about this Jesus, 
then we're going to take a look at another piece today that will hopefully make that case, okay? So just in case the answer to that question for you is no, let's consider another piece of scripture. And in this, what we're going to see is something that we see every single year. This is, this is not going to be something like, like, like light bulb moment for, for you. You see this every single year. But the thing is, is we tend to overlook it. It's become so commonplace in, in our thoughts of the, of the Advent and Christmas season that we tend to overlook it. So church, I'm going to ask you this morning, do you see what I see when we look at the wise men? And do you see what I see when we look at Herod? Not a popular Christmas figure, obviously Herod is, but there's something about him that, that, that scripture uh, wants to teach us. Okay. So let's look at Matthew chapter two. This is going to be our main passage for today. Matthew two verses one through 15. Follow along with me. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. The church, as we get into this passage today. I want to start with an encouragement and my encouragement to you is this, and and, and I'm speaking to myself too. I want to encourage you not to let popular cultural Christianity shape your beliefs and understanding. And here's what I mean by that. We get bombarded, not just at Christmas, but but really all year around from, from these different sources, these different Christian sources. Okay. Let me, let me give you some examples. Think about movies and TV. All right, around this time of the year, one of my, my family and I, one of our favorite movies to watch is The Nativity Story, kind of the modern day version of The Nativity Story. Some of you may have seen that. We love to watch that this time of year. Many of us have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, or maybe you watch The Chosen, or you read Christian books, or you see people, or maybe you're one of these people who wear Christian t-shirts with some kind of verse on it, or you have Hobby Lobby crafts, okay, with verses on it. Everybody's got those hanging up in their house somewhere, all right? Or works of art, okay? What I'm saying, church, I'm not saying not to engage with or watch or display these things. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is to be careful not to let these 
Christian things substitute for this. You cannot let popular cultural Christianity substitute for the word of God. What I'm trying to say is don't, don't watch a Christian movie or a TV show or, or, or see a nice Hobby Lobby you know, craft hung up in somebody's house without filtering it through this. Popular cultural Christianity is a poor, poor substitute for this, okay? Just to, just to give you an example, I'm encouraging not to, use, not to use scripture just because it sounds good. I heard recently a, 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 an interview with a football player who quoted a very famous, uh, a very famous passage, Philippians four thirteen, which says, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." You know what he was using that verse in reference to? He was using that to justify why his football team was going to be victorious over a football, uh, I guess, a rival that was coming up that they were playing. Okay, you see how that's misused and that's taken out of context. Let's not do that. So, with that being said, I want to give you one example, another example of how. Popular cultural Christianity has probably shaped and informed our understanding, in particular through a work of art. So, Miss Beth, if you'll throw that up there, that's nice, right? I mean, it's a cool painting, no doubt. But this is—you see this—a picture like this around this time of year in many, many different places. Okay, and, and here, let's look at—they they, kind of have some of the same elements, no matter which one you look at. You always have Mary and Joseph, who are are, are huddled around the baby Jesus. And then to their left, you see them over there. Those are the shepherds that are leaning on their staffs. And the shepherds are mentioned in the Bible in Luke chapter 2. And the angel tells them, announces to them the birth of the Savior. And they go to Bethlehem. And this is what they find. Um, down here in the bottom right corner, um, these are some curious onlookers. You know, by, the Bible doesn't necessarily mention uh, onlookers that were there. But it's, it's probable that people like that were there. Why? Because you remember they were there for a census. Bethlehem was crowded Okay, people had come for this census that Caesar Augustus had had said, we're going to do this for taxation purposes. And so so people had come. So it's not implausible to think that that there were people there. And then just to Joseph's right, I'm not sure who this lady is. Maybe it's like Mary's doula or midwife. That was my first thought. The Bible doesn't mention her. I don't even know if they practiced that sort of thing back then. Uh, so I just took a guess. But then to her right, you see the three wise men, the three wise men bringing their gifts to Jesus. You know these guys from the popular Christmas song, don't you? We three kings of Orient are, right? Well, here, here's, here's, here's the thing about the three wise men. They, they are certainly talked about in the Bible, but they in fact were not there. They weren't there. Also, there's nothing in scripture that tells us that there were three Actually, what is informed, the fact that we commonly think there are three, is the fact that there were three gifts, as we just read from Matthew 2. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so there must have been three of them. Actually, there were probably a lot of them, like a huge caravan. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into this. But the fact that remains is, when we look at Scripture closely, these three wise men, in fact, were not at the birth of Jesus. And I'm going to explain that as we get into the passage. And look, church, I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas But I simply want to make the point that this picture and many other nativity scenes like it are biblically inaccurate. And so we cannot allow, we must not allow our understanding to be shaped by popular cultural Christianity. It can only be God's word that informs our belief because it's the only standard of absolute truth. So let's look closely at the text together, okay? Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. All right, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, an established fact, both right here in Matthew 2 as well as in Luke 2. As I stated earlier, the Roman Caesar Augustus had decreed that there should be a census, that all of the Roman world uh, should be, all of the Roman occupied and controlled world should be counted. There should be a census of them so, uh, so that they could tax correctly for taxation purposes. And so Joseph and Mary, who live in Nazareth of, of Galilee, they had to travel approximately 90 miles south to get to Bethlehem. And the reason they had to is because scripture tells us because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem is known as the city of David. And so this happened in the days of Herod the king. Now, history records that Herod reigned from 37 BC until his death in 4 BC, which tells us what? Jesus wasn't born in the year zero. Okay, actually, Jesus was born sometime before 4 BC, probably about 6 or 7 BC specifically. And it is during Herod's rule that these wise men will come east to Jerusalem. So I want to ask you this question. I want to hit pause for just a second. Have you ever wondered or have you ever asked, we, we, we see images like the one we just saw on the screen a moment ago with the wise men. Have you ever wondered how did these non-Jewish Gentile probably Persian wise men, how did they even know to go west? How did they know to come from wherever they were to get up, pack up, and to make the journey west? How did they even know that? Yeah, because of the star. But most of us, if we saw some sort of like phenomenon in the sky, we'd be like, oh, that's crazy. You know, let's get on Facebook and see what people are saying about this. (laughs) You know, but they knew to come. We're going to come back to that question in a moment. We are going to answer that question But first, I want to answer the question, why? Why did they come? Verse 2 tells us that. These wise men come to Herod and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 2 states their purpose, a very specific purpose. Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. That's very specific. That's their purpose, to come and worship. So this is the why they have come, but now that question that we ask, how did they know to come? So these three wise men from the east, again, probably Persian, probably from Babylon, which is modern day uh, Iraq, they would likely have been familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And you're like, how in the world is that possible? That people from the far east would be, you know, especially in the Middle East, be be familiar with Jewish scriptures. You have to remember, and this is all recorded in the Old Testament, that approximately 600 years prior to this happening, you had a Babylonian exile where you have key figures that you know from the Old Testament, like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. These are guys who rise to prominent positions of authority and influence in the Babylonian kingdom because the kingdom of Israel was, was displaced to Babylon. There was an exile of tens of thousands of Jewish refugees displaced to Babylon during that time, and some of them that even remained there after the the Israelites came back to Jerusalem. So it's not implausible to think that you have these three Jewish wise men that have at least some access to Jewish scriptures who most likely knew both, uh, both the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, and these are men who are dedicated to understanding 
and, under, and dedicated to knowledge, knowing the signs in the heaven. And so perhaps if they had such access to Jewish scriptures, maybe they recalled something like Numbers twenty four seventeen, which says, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Whatever the case is, though, they knew that this star pointed to something very specific. Verse 2 tells us that, specifically a baby born king of the Jews who was worthy of worship and the royal gifts they brought. Maybe they were familiar with passages like Jeremiah 23, 5, which says, he shall reign as king. The prophet Jeremiah writes this about this root, this righteous branch of David that will come. And it says, he shall reign as king. So what we can know for sure is that for these wise men, There is a glorious expectation in the birth of the newborn king, a glorious expectation. I want to ask the question, why is there a glorious expectation? If you're taking notes, I'd like you to write that question down. Why is there a glorious expectation? And then I want you to leave a space because in a minute we're going to answer that question. Before we answer that question, though, I want us to consider Herod. I told you, not a very popular Christmas figure. Nobody puts Herod in their nativity scene, you know, like off to the side. Herod's not popular, but I want you to consider how Herod would respond to this news. Verse number three, here's what he says. When Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So when Herod hears the wise men's motives, he was troubled. History records that Herod was notoriously paranoid and anything that a challenge, anything that would challenge his authority and his rule, uh, he eliminated And we know from history that he had at least three of his own sons executed, probably because he feared that they wanted to take over and usurp his throne, which might have been true. But I read this week in a a commentary by William Barclay, where he says that Caesar Augustus, the same Caesar Augustus that ordered the census, famously quipped that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. That's how you, you can imagine what kind of individual that we're dealing with here. So Herod was troubled, but, but not in a light sense. And then the verse also tells us that all of Jerusalem was troubled along with him. Why do you think that's so? Because Jerusalem knows who this man is. They know who Herod the king is. They know of his paranoia. They know of the links that he will go to to eliminate a threat. And when he's going to go to those links, when he's going to take those measures, there is inevitably going to be collateral damage. And they realize that. So verse four, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod's paranoia gets the best of him. And he goes to work immediately, gathering other people who are way smarter than him on this subject. And he brings the chief priests and the scribes together. These are the the religious elite. These are the ones who know scriptures better than any other. And he says, tell me what is written about where this king is supposed to be born. Verse five is their answer. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the chief priests and the scribes, they point to Micah five, two Micah five, two tells us that very thing from, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler In Israel, the ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel will come from the humble town of Bethlehem. So with this information in hand, here is Herod's response. 
He's now got the where. He's ascertained the where. So now verse seven, it says that Herod then summoned the wise men who had come from the Far East. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he gathers these Persian wise men in secret because he needs info from them too. He got the where from his scribes and Pharisees or scribes and priests. The answer to that is Bethlehem. Now he needs the when. And he's going to use these Gentile wise men to tell him, when did you see this star? Now, even though the Bible does not record what their answer is, there is a way that we can rightly assume what the answer is based on events that happen a little bit later in the chapter. And we're going to get to those. But for now, Herod, we know, has his where, Bethlehem, and he has his when. But then Herod takes it a step further. And he decides that he's going to use these Persian wise men as his personal errand boys, so to speak. Verse number eight tells us, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I got that it's like Bethlehem, but let's just take the guesswork out of it and nail the exact spot down. Wise men, go find him. And when you find him, come and tell me so I can go and worship him also. So church, I want you to consider the responses of each figure that we've seen here. You have wise men who spoke truth. We have come to worship him. You have Herod, on the other hand, who spoke a lie. He said the same thing, but it was a lie when he said, so I too may come and worship him. As we said earlier, these wise men, they look forward. Uh, They have this glorious expectation of this newborn king. Herod's response, though, to this newborn king is not one of, of adoration, but rather it's one of dreaded anticipation. And why is that? It's because now, for now at least, Jesus, he's just a baby. How threatening is a baby? But Herod understands basic biology that, that this baby is going to grow into a man. And that man, at least according to these wise men, is going to be king. And that king is going to challenge his rule. The simple fact is this, Jesus threatens Herod's kingdom. Jesus threatens Herod's kingdom. And so here's the wise men's men's response to Herod. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So these magi, they go... And the star that they had seen when it rose, it led them to where Jesus was. And then it tells us that they were overjoyed. And why do you think it was that they were rejoicing with exceedingly great joy? Okay, here's the answer to that question, okay, that I had you write down earlier. Why was there such glorious expectation? Because this was the culmination of everything that they had been searching for, everything that they had been traveling for. They had now arrived in the presence of the newborn king of the Jews, as they called him. And if these wise men had access to Jewish scriptures, as we believe they, they did, as we've discussed, then not the, these wise men knew not only was he the newborn king of the Jews, but they would have been familiar with passages like Daniel 9, 24 through 26, which calls Jesus, or the, the, you know, the one to come, the, uh, the, the anointed one. Psalm 132 calls him the Messiah, the one to save the people from their sins. And now these wise men are in the presence of this newborn king of the Jews. They're in the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. 
Maybe they knew scriptures like Isaiah 42, six through seven. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Church, Jesus is a light for the nations. And what does that mean? We use that word nations all the time. In scripture, the word nations means people groups, all people groups. And these Gentile wise men rejoice exceedingly with great joy that this Jesus is a light for both Jews and the Gentile nations, all people groups just like them. And that is why there's such glorious expectation in these men's hearts. Because this one that they've come to see, that they've put so much effort into getting to, this is Jesus, the Messiah for all peoples. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now notice here, what does it say? It says, so they go into the house, not the stable, not the manger scene, not the cave, They go into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And now comes the culmination of all their effort and motive and sacrifice. Remember, being from Persia, Babylon, they've traveled roughly 800 miles or more. Some some scholars say over a thousand. Depends on where they came from. Probably with this massive caravan via camel. They've made this incredibly hard journey. And now they come and they fall down and they worship the light for the nations. And they offer him these fitting gifts. And hence the title of our, of, our, of our message today, Gifts Fit for a King. Here's what, here's what those gifts were. Gold, think about gold. A valuable, valuable commodity that's used, that's used throughout scripture, uh, always tied to royalty and to divinity. Frankincense, an aromatic fragrance that was used in the Old Testament uh, to worship God. Also a symbol of holiness and righteousness. You have myrrh, a spice that was used in embalming practices, but also was an incredibly expensive perfume, which shadowed the de- shadowed his death, foreshadowed his death on the cross as a substitute for man's sin. These were gifts that were fit for a king. My friend Alberto sent me this. Uh, he's not in here this morning. I don't see him. But my friend Alberto sent me this humorous little comic this week. Some of you might have seen it too, where it said, "This is what would have been brought if it were three wise women." And it was these women that were standing there. It was like diapers and formula and casseroles. You know, it was, it was funny. But have you ever thought about why these men brought these gifts? Why gold? Why frankincense? Why myrrh? Why these costly gifts? Apart from, apart from the royal identification and the foreshadowing of his death, why these things? They knew they were coming to worship a newborn king. So these were the things that they thought were fitting, but there's a reason. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment as we go a little bit further. The scene concludes, verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Simple as that. These wise men are warned not to comply with Herod's request to report the location of the child. And so they skip town via an alternate route. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. The wise men leave. The angel of the Lord reveals Herod's murderous intent to Joseph and sends Joseph and the family off to Egypt. Joseph gets up, obeys immediately, and they're off. Now, church, for just a second, I want to take a radical departure away from what we're talking about to go to another part of scripture. And you're going to have to just please just bear with me for just a moment. I promise all of this is going to come full circle. Everything that I'm about to describe to you happens before everything that we've been discussing. Okay. So think about it when you, you know, you watch your favorite show and your show has like a flashback that kind of gives you context to everything that's going on. That's what we're about to do here. Okay. So just please bear with me, hang with me. Here's the timeline. If you go to Luke chapter two, you have a record of Jesus's birth. In Luke chapter two, you have angels who announce the birth of the savior to the shepherds in the field nearby. Then you have shepherds come to the place where Jesus is born and they proclaim all they were told about this child. When you get to verses 21 through 24 of Luke chapter two, here's what it, uh, it basically tells us. It tells us that eight days later, Jesus is circumcised. That was according to the law of Moses. And he's given the name of Jesus. 33 days after that, they have to go to the temple in Jerusalem for purification because in Jewish culture, a woman who gave birth to a male child was considered unclean for 40 days and they had to go through this purification ritual, okay? Which again, that temple is in Jerusalem, which is just six short miles away from Bethlehem. And then all of this, all of this ritual is recorded in the law of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 12. If you want to make a note of that and look at it later for time's sake, we don't have to have time to go uh, through that today. But Leviticus 12 is where all of that is recorded. When we get to Luke chapter 2 verse 24, and that verse is going to be on the screen for you. The law of the Lord required a sacrifice for the purification. And commonly it was a lamb that was sacrificed if the family could afford it. If the family could not afford it, there was a provision that was written in the law that, again, if you could not afford a lamb, Leviticus 12.8 says that you could offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, Luke 2.24, as you see on the screen, records that's exactly what they did. They offered two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which tells us what? That Mary and Joseph were very poor financially. They were very poor financially. And so then as you go on through Luke chapter two, I promise there's all this is coming together. Just bear with me. You have two different people following this scene in Luke chapter two. You have two different people in the temple when they're there for the purification who come and testify to the identity of Jesus as the Christ, this man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. And then Luke records in Luke two thirty nine, which this verse is going to be on the screen for you as well. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their town of Nazareth. Stop. Why doesn't Luke record the visit of the wise men? Why does Luke not record the visit of the wise men? How does Luke go from the temple scene directly to Nazareth where Jesus would eventually grow up? You got to remember that this purification ritual that they've gone to Jerusalem for is at least 41 days after Jesus's birth. There's been no time to flee to Egypt and come back. Herod's still in power. He's not dead yet. You know, so what is it? What we don't see is that Mary and Joseph, after this purification ritual, actually go back to Bethlehem 
and they settle in Bethlehem. We know this because of Matthew 2, 16, with this verse will be up there for you. When Herod seeks to kill the male children, where did, where did Herod concentrate his focus? In Bethlehem, in the surrounding region. Where did he get that information from? He got that from his scribes and his chief priests, right? This Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod seeks to kill the male children that are in Bethlehem in the surrounding region. So I ask you, if Mary and Joseph, after this temple purification ritual, if they had gone directly back to Nazareth, which is 90 miles north of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, then why would they have had to flee to Egypt? Herod's focus was concentrated in Bethlehem. Nazareth is 90 miles north. There would be no reason that they have to flee to Egypt to avoid Herod's massacre. But then I also want, you, want to point you to Matthew 2, 16. Herod chooses to kill all the male children who are two years old and younger. Why two years old? If Jesus was just born 41 days ago or last night or whenever, why not just the two-week-olds or the one-month-olds or whatever? But he kills all the male children two years old and younger. Because what that would do is that would include the time that Jesus was born. Where did he get that info from? From the wise men. Remember he called them together and said, when did you see this star? And they told him. So all of that to say that the wise men were not there the night that Jesus was born, but actually up to two years later. Most, most New Testament scholars believe that, it was, that Jesus was about a year old when the wise men came to visit him and offer those gifts. So quick recap, there's the temple scene in Luke chapter two, Mary and Joseph return to settle in Bethlehem. Sometime later, between 41 days and two years after Jesus's birth, wise men from the east come and worship the newborn king. So what we have to do is we have to bisect that verse, that Luke 2.39. We have to bisect that verse in half. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, break, Insert Matthew's account here. Wise men, Herod, flight to Egypt, return to Israel. Then they return to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Now, why would Luke not include that? You have to remember that Luke is writing his gospel to a primarily Greek audience. And his Greek audience would have, would have little to no knowledge of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. However, Matthew is very focused on prophecy. You know Why? Because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who understand the Old Testament prophecies. And now he's sharing with them how the baby Jesus fulfills so many of those prophecies. For example, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. So after the temple scene recorded in Luke 2, you have the wise men, you have Herod. Herod sends them to find the child. They do and worship him and offer gifts they're warned not to report to Herod. They go on their own way. Herod gets angry that he's been deceived. And so the angel of the Lord warns Joseph to flee with the family to Egypt. Now, here's my question. How in the world are they going to flee to Egypt when they are so poor that they cannot even afford to offer a lamb? Because traveling is not cheap. And a two-year stay in a foreign country is not cheap. They can't afford offering the lamb at the purification ritual. They, they can only offer pigeons. But thanks be to God, 600 years ago, 
the prophecies of a Messiah, born king of the Jews, were given to the Babylonians and they were passed down over the centuries. And they inspired Persian wise men to seek out and worship this infant child and shower him not with practical gifts according to human wisdom, but rather costly, regal, royal gifts, valuable gold and valuable frankincense and valuable myrrh, which would be perfect for financing a costly two-year trip to Egypt to escape the wrath of a madman and to preserve the life of the Messiah. Verse 15a says, they remained there, talking about Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This is not happenstance, people, but rather this is the sovereign hand of God who knew since the foundation of the world that these gifts would be needed in this moment. You remember when we read Isaiah 42, 6 through 7? We're going to throw it back up there for you again, but I want to focus on a different part this time. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and what? Keep you. Focus on that word keep. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. In this verse, the Hebrew word that is translated, translated as keep, it means to protect or to guard. The sovereign hand of God is protecting the light of the nations by providing exactly what's needed for the family to flee to the safety of Egypt. Not only to preserve the life of the Messiah, but also in keeping with Hosea 11.1, 1, a prophecy spoken by Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now in this particular verse, it's referring to the exodus of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, which is a foreshadowing or a prophecy of the Christ who is to come. You see how Matthew focuses on these prophecies in order to convince a Jewish audience who this Messiah is. So let's really quick review the intentions of each of the figures we've looked at today. First, you have the wise men in Matthew 2.2. And what comes out of their mouth is truth. We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Their intention was to worship this long arduous journey that they had endured this costly journey that they had endured for who knows how long anywhere up to two years has finally come to the end and they are going to worship the king and they had think about it from as far away as they were and as and as as little perhaps limited access to the scriptures that they had yet they looked forward with great joyous expectation contrast that with Matthew 2 8 where you have Herod who speaks a lie bring me word that I too may come and worship him his intention was not to worship but to what to kill right what's interesting about these wise men compared to Herod is that where the wise men were far off hundreds and hundreds of miles away with limited access to the scriptures you have Herod who was always in close proximity to this king six miles away from the site of his birth. Herod also has at his disposal the most knowledgeable of the scriptures, the priests and the scribes. But what was Herod's attitude? He was consumed with this dreaded anticipation. This Jesus threatened his kingdom. So how do you think that those two attitudes, the attitudes of the wise men and of Herod, how do they reflect the hearts and attitudes of people today? Well, the wise men, there's much of the same sentiment today. Many who worship and celebrate the first advent of Christ, 
God who took on flesh to live a sinless life, to go to the cross, to be crucified, buried, only to rise again three days later so that we could have the forgiveness of sins, but more so that the glory of God would be exalted in all the earth among all the nations because Jesus is what? He is a light for the nations. Some worship and celebrate the first advent of Christ in glorious and joyous expectation of his second coming. Much like Herod, there's much of the same sentiment today. Everybody's okay with the baby Jesus at Christmas. He's the centerpiece of the cute nativity scene. He's innocent and helpless as all babies are. Baby Jesus doesn't represent an immediate threat to the kingdom that you've built for yourself. But baby Jesus grows to be the man Jesus. And when Jesus calls you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him, then he becomes a threat to the authority and the rule that you've set up in your own life. People adore the manger, but they reject the man who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And so today I plead with you that if this is you, if you find yourself dreading Jesus' return, if you haven't surrendered your life to him as Lord, I want to tell you that today can be the day of your salvation. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again from the grave so that you and I may have life, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God the Father. I encourage you, if that's you today, to find somebody to talk about that with. Come find me after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk with you about that. I want you to consider this question. I'm not going to give you an answer, but I'm going to leave this question to your imagination. What gifts could Herod have offered this newborn king? If Herod's heart had been like the wise men, what great things from a human standpoint could Herod have done for this poor Galilean family? A lot, right? A lot. Church, I want to tell you that every single one of you have gifts too. You have gifts to either offer to the king or to withhold for yourself. You have very specific gifts that God has given you for a very specific purpose. Like the wise men, just like the wise men, in order to offer those gifts, it's going to be a difficult journey. It's hard to follow Jesus. I'm not going to mince words. It is not easy to follow Jesus. In fact, it is very difficult. Christians, you know that. Like the wise man, offering those gifts is going to be difficult. It's going to make you uncomfortable and it's going to cost a high price. It may mean surrendering your high paying job in order to answer the call of God to carry the gospel around the world to those who have not heard yet. Because what have we said? Jesus is a light for how many nations? All nations. It may mean letting go and supporting your children or your grandchildren as they are called to carry the gospel around the world. It may mean taking up the mantle right here at home to see the gospel proclaimed to the unreached right here in the Quad Cities. Do you know that there are people right here in the Quad Cities that have never heard the name of Jesus? Right here in our own backyard. Church, I will also say we have to consider that taking the gospel and following God's call in our life may mean our very lives themselves. You guys know that we have missionaries in places right now, like as we're talking, 
We have supported missionaries in places where if it were revealed that they were Christians or missionaries, they could be killed. Right this moment. It could mean our very lives. But here's the encouraging part, church. It will all be worth it. It will all be worth it because at the end of that long and arduous and painful journey, you're going to arrive just like the wise men. You're going to arrive at the feet of the king. Only this time that king's not a baby anymore, but rather this king looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. It will all be worth it just to hear that phrase come out of Jesus's mouth directed at you. Church, you have gifts to offer. Unlike the wise men, though, your gifts are not going to be used. As we've described today, your gifts are not going to be used to protect the Messiah. Your gifts are going to be used to proclaim the Messiah, to proclaim the name of Jesus to people who gloriously anticipate his coming, but they don't even know it yet. They don't even know it yet. Because people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and race will come to the throne by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9 through 12 tells us exactly that. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I'm going to ask the the worship band to come back. And I want to close with this. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. This is the the finish line. That's the finish line. And what's great about the finish line is the finish line is also a starting line. It's the starting line of eternity. People from every tribe, nation, tongue, and race will worship around the throne of the Lamb forever. Forever. I want to close with this story. Last March, our friend Todd Aaron was here. And to close out one of the sessions, he, he shared how the Lord had led him and his wife to adopt a little boy in China. And for any of you who know anything about adoption or have been through that process, it is difficult, especially international adoption. The red tape, the forms, the time, the bureaucracy, the cost, tens of thousands of dollars that it costs in order to adopt internationally. And Todd and his wife had gone through all of that hard, hard in, you know, work. And they had come to the point where they had gotten the all clear and they're ready to get on a plane and fly to China to pick up their son. And so they're still here in the United States getting ready to leave. And they're at a restaurant and Todd, you guys, for those of you who remember Todd and how outgoing he is, you know, he doesn't meet a stranger, talks to everybody. And so he had struck up a conversation with a waitress and she asked, you know, you know, where are you guys headed? And we're going to China to pick up our son who we've adopted. And Todd said, she at this waitress asked a question that of all the process they had been through, this one question had never been asked of them. And when this waitress asked this question, he and Todd and his wife could only look at each other kind of like dumbfounded. And she asked this question. She said, does he know that you're coming to get him? And Todd, you know, they're looking at each other and they're like, you know, and he looks back at the waitress and he goes, no, he has no idea. He has no idea 
that we are coming to get him. Church family, Todd tells that story and I share it with you again today to say that there are people right now all over the world who have never heard. We celebrate this first advent of Christ and we look forward, just as Pastor Andrew said earlier, we look forward to his second coming. But do you know, we, we talk so much about his second coming when almost half of the world hasn't even heard of the first. And they are waiting. They are gloriously expecting a Messiah that they've never even heard of yet, but they are going to be saved. And how are they going to be saved? You only need to go to Romans 10 to find that answer. Romans 10, Romans 10 tells us that beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that is the church that we want to be a church dedicated to taking the gospel to all nations. Church, you have gifts to offer to proclaim the Messiah to all people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Do this morning what only you can do, Lord. Convict our hearts, change us, and draw us to the purposes that you've set set before us, the good works that you've created for us to walk in. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that is hearing this, Lord, that you are moving and working in their hearts this morning and calling them to the nations. Lord, I will not pray that for anybody in here before I pray that for myself, Lord. Lord, the moment that you were ready for me to go to another nation to take your gospel, I I am ready. Here am I, send me. Lord, when that moment comes, make that clear to me and to my wife and to my son. Lord, use us for your purposes, and I pray that for our church. Lord, our desire is to be a church that you raise up missionaries in. Lord, I pray that you would bring that conviction to our hearts this Christmas season. Jesus, thank you for the gift of yourself. Thank you for the gift of righteousness that you give to us because of your death, burial, and resurrection. And I pray that there is someone here that does not understand that this morning, that you would push away all the misunderstanding, all the distractions, and that you would help them to see you, Jesus, clearly. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things for the glory of your name, in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040 If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.